All right, open your Bibles this morning, Romans chapter 16. We are right at the end. All good things must come to an end. And our study in Romans has been, in my opinion, very, very good. It's very, been very lengthy. We actually started uh, over a year and a half ago. Uh, we went through the first several chapters of Romans. COVID kind of interrupted us. We shifted over to the book of Colossians. We preached through the book of Colossians because the cure for COVID is the book of Colossians for the Laodicean church. And so we got some practical teaching about what we should be focused on. We should be focused on the ministry. We came back to Romans because I don't like leaving things undone. And we want to finish this tremendous book that God has given us in the New Testament. The, the, the doctrinal treatise of our salvation is found in the book of Romans. And without going through all the review that I would love to do, let me just remind you that at the very end of the book, the book closes with a focus on ministry. Romans 15 and Romans 16 really just focuses on ministry. And, and especially in this last chapter, it talks about the relationships that we have in ministry. Because ministry runs on the rails of relationships. And, and we talked about, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Phoebe, who was a servant of the church at Centria. We talked about Aquila and Priscilla, who had a church in their house. All of these people were co-laborers with the Apostle Paul. Uh, we even learned about some people that, that were contrary uh, to sound doctrine within the church. And, and Paul's admonition was, listen, you, you salute and greet and, and kiss with a holy kiss those who serve Christ, those who are faithful to Christ. But those who create division and offenses within the body... You're to mark them and avoid them. And so doctrine is really important in a church. Paul understood that. God understands that. We need to understand that. And so as we, as we kind of get into this last portion of, of Romans 16, there's another list of names. And, and again, the, the, the title of this little mini-series within, within this chapter is called Ministry is Relationships. And so I just want to read verses 20 to 27. Uh, we could really take three weeks on this passage, but we don't have it. And, uh, and so I want to just hit the high points uh, this morning as we're together, and uh, t today will be a little more of a Bible study. We're going we're gonna to get into some deep weeds, and so I hope you came ready. I hope you got coffeeed up and uh, are ready to go, because we're going to need it this morning. Romans 16, verse 20 says this, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And then Paul lists some more names. Timotheus, my work fellow and Lucius, and Jason, and Sosipater, my kinsmen, salute you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. Hang on to verse 22. We'll come back to that in a minute. Gaius, mine own host, and the whole church saluteth you. Erastus, the chamberlain of the city, saluteth you. And Quartus, our brother, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now, to him that's able, uh, him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandments of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith, to God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. You ever been in a conversation with somebody and, and you thought the conversation was over and then it just continued and then you thought it was over and, and don't think about your spouse right now, but uh, uh, you know, you think, okay, I think we're done. And then there was like another kind of input and then it was like, okay, we're done now. And then there's a little bit more. And, and what's interesting is in Romans, uh, Paul actually in Romans 15 and Romans 16, there's four different endings to this passage of scripture. As a matter of fact, he, he always talks about the God of peace and the grace of Jesus Christ. And then he says, amen. But then there's a little bit more. And then he says, you know, yeah, the, the God of peace is going to bruise Satan under your feet shortly and the grace of Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And then he says a little bit more and he talks about the grace of God being with you. There's like four endings. And so, you know, a married man can understand that. All right. So anyways, man, I thought y'all were awake this morning. All right. So this morning, we're, gonna, we're not going to go through all the names because, because we've done that at length and, and there's a lot of rich things that we can learn. But as we talk about relationships this morning, there's three things as we close this chapter that I think we need to understand from the passage. Three, three different categories of, of things and people that we have to have right relationship with 
And the first is the devil, Satan. And so what we're going to see in point number one in your notes is this. I want, to, I want to share with us, we need to have a right understanding and a right relationship concerning Satan's impending defeat. Because as Paul closes this chapter, the greatest book on salvation in the New Testament, the doctrinal treatise of salvation, Paul reminds the Romans, listen, the God of peace is going to bruise Satan under your feet shortly. And I don't know about you, but, but listen, man, who doesn't want to see Satan get what he has coming? Amen. You, know, you know what I'm saying? Listen, <laughs> that dude has been wrecking humanity for 6,000 years. All the way back in the garden, he has been ruining and and trying to overthrow and coup what God has been doing. And can I just tell you, listen, that one being, this one relationship, this one person that, that, that goes all the way back to the garden, Satan himself, the devil, listen, he's got it coming. And and listen, there's, there's an appointment, there's a standing time on God's calendar that has prom- he has promised us in his word that that old dragon, according to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 2, that old serpent, which is called the devil and Satan, he is going to get what he deserves. And I, I want to remind us this morning of who he is, according to the Bible. The, the Bible teaches us that Satan himself is our adversary. He's our adversary, according to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. The Bible tells us to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And I want you to understand, listen, the devil has nothing good for you, no good intention for you. He has no good intention for your family, for your church, for the lost. He is a devourer of the souls of men, and he is our adversary. And listen, we have to understand what the Bible says about him so that we're not enticed to follow him. And to give heed to him. And so, and so the first bullet point in your notes is, listen, Satan is our adversary. And by the way, he's God's adversary too. Number two, Satan blinds the minds of the lost to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now listen, have, have any of you ever tried to share the gospel and thought, man, I am talking to a person, but I am talking to a brick wall, what seems to be a brick wall. There's just nothing getting through to this person. Listen, and sometimes I feel like that on Sunday morning, to be honest with you. Listen, and, and when we go out and we preach the gospel, it's like, man, are you kidding me? I'm, what I'm telling you is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ can save you from your sin through his shed blood and the finished work of the cross. Why would you not want to receive that? And it's like talking to a piece of plywood. Well, the reason why is because the devil, Satan himself, blinds the lost to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4 says, In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Listen, one of the limitations or one of the oppositions that we face in preaching the gospel is the devil himself. You've got to understand that. You've got to understand that, that preaching and sharing the gospel with other people Although academic, in other words, you need to understand what the gospel is according to the scripture. You need to understand it's a spiritual battle. You have an adversary. You have an adversary that's actively working to blind people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if he can't keep them from getting saved, his desire is to keep them from growing into conformity to the image of Christ. He's active in the spiritual warfare of this world and he is our adversary, and man, he's going to get it. He's going to get it. His defeat is coming, but it's not yet. It's not yet. And so every day we have to realize that, that, that when we show up to church, when we show up to minister, when we show up to be a part of the Great Commission, we're in a battle. We have an adversary. We have an enemy that's blinding the minds of people. Uh, I, was, I was hanging with Sam last night, and, and just in conversation, one of the things that that Sam mentioned was his church in Midtown. It's right in the center of like downtown. Some of you have been there and it's got poor parking and, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of like drug activity and homelessness and, and, uh, you know, vandalism and theft and all those different things. And he said this statement last night and I thought this, that's a really good statement. He said, it's really hard to come to church at Midtown Baptist. It's hard. 
Why? Because the devil is our adversary. And he's opposing everything that God wants to do. And people park along the streets and they do the best they can. And while they're in church, people vandalize their car and they cut off their catalytic converters and they knock out their windows and they steal their purses. And it's hard to go to church there. Why? Because it's just in a bad part of town? No, because the devil is still alive and well and doing what he does. And he said, so our people understand. And not everybody stays there because it's hard. And he said, we have to learn to endure hardness as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. We have to learn to endure opposition from the adversary because, listen, God hadn't dealt with him just yet. He's going to, but he hasn't dealt with him just yet. Number three, the devil hinders ministry. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18, Paul writes, and Paul had a desire to get back to Thessalonica. He said, wherefore, we would have come to you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. And I'm telling you, listen, the devil is active in hindering people that would, that would make disciples. Paul was wanting to get back to Thessalonica. He had only been there for like three weeks, three Sabbath days. And he got run out of the city. He got run out of that area. And his desire was to go back and to disciple those believers that received the gospel. And he said, I tried once and again, but somebody hindered me. It was Satan himself. And I'm telling you, listen, we, we have to understand the opposition that we face is a very real, it's a real thing. It's a real person. It is the devil himself. Number four, Satan himself has ministers. And this is a scary point, but we need to understand it. Satan has ministers just as Jesus Christ has ministers. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 14 and 15, he says, No marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works. Now, that's a scary verse. Let's just be honest. What that means is that Satan himself can transform himself into as an angel of light, and he can look right, and he can look spiritual, and he can look godly, and he has ministers that can also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness. In other words, the devil operates in the world of religion. He operates in the realm and the world of religion. He has ministers who seem religious and quote-unquote righteous. They have a form of godliness with no power. Boy, do they have a form of godliness. I mean, this dude is masterful. You know what I'm saying? His power, I mean, listen, he is not all-powerful, but he has a lot of power. He's not all-knowing, but he knows a lot. He knows humanity for 6,000 years. He's also full of signs and lying wonders. You better be careful if you ask God for a sign. You better be careful because there's a devil that can also deliver in the area of signs and wonders. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9, it says, Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. And he's talking about the Antichrist. But listen, I want you to understand that the the, the, the demonic world, the demonic forces that oppose Christ and the gospel, there are signs and there are wonders. And, and, and please understand, you don't rely on signs and wonders for God to speak to you. You go back to what God's word says in his book. And you rightly divide it according to the spirit of God that is the revealer of truth, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And, and you don't just wait on charismatic type things to happen to think that that's how you have a relationship with God. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. The devil himself has power and signs and lying wonders, so much so that he could deceive us if we're not careful. And then the last point is that the devil is in control of the kingdoms of this world. And I know you voted Democrat or Republican. I know you did, and, and I know you thought that your vote mattered. But let me just tell you ultimately who's pulling the strings in this world. It's not Democrats, and it's not Republicans, and it's not communists. It's the devil. Luke chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 says, The devil took Jesus Christ up into a high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, To the King of kings and Lord of lords, he said, All this power will I give thee and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me. And to whomsoever I 
will give it. And again, man, that, that's not a statement that says you shouldn't vote. It, it's not a statement that says you shouldn't be patriotic. It's not a statement that says we shouldn't try to change things through government and policy and reform. We should do all of those things. But a Christian understands, ultimately, the God of this world is in control of the kingdoms of this world for the time being until the King of Kings returns and reigns, rightfully. And, and, and so listen, we have to understand who this guy is. We have to understand that God has, a, has an appointment. One day shortly, the God of peace is going to bruise Satan's head. And, and ultimately, what we're seeing in this passage in Romans 16 is a promise of the fulfillment that was all the way prophesied back in Genesis chapter 3. I want you to look at it on the screen with me real quick. All the way back in Genesis, when Adam and Eve fell, they sinned in the garden, and, and the devil, the serpent was there, and he was deceiving uh, the woman, and he was questioning God's word, and, and basically lying about what God said to, to Eve, and he deceived her into, into transgressing against God's law. You know the story, God went to each party, the, the woman, the man, and the serpent, and God delegated kind of the judgment of that sin to each person. Well, in Genesis 3 and verse 14, here's what God said to the serpent. He says, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shall thou go, the dust uh, shall thou eat all the days of thy life. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, listen, and between thy seed and her seed. It, in other words, her seed shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And I'm telling you, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall of humanity, God prophesied through this prophecy that God's seed, the woman's seed, by the way, a woman doesn't have seed, it's a man that carries the seed for reproduction, but he said there's a woman that's going to have seed, and he is going to bruise your head, and you're going to bruise his heel. And what he's talking about ultimately is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the God of peace that we're seeing in Romans 16 is going to crush the head of Satan. And I'm telling you, I can't wait to see it. I cannot wait to see it. And I'm going to tell you whose judgment that's reserved for, by the way, that's reserved for the God of peace. That's who's going to do that. So no, no crazy, charismatic preacher, no guy that can get real loud, that, that makes a fool of himself stomping on Satan's head on the stage. He's not going to do it. It's the God of peace that's going to do it. It's the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, if you've read through the Bible, there's a couple of guys, and I put them in your notes. We don't have time to talk about them. But, but it's interesting. There are a few people in the Old Testament as, as types or pictures that got their head crushed, that got wounded or killed with a head wound. Sisera, Judges chapter 5 and verse 26, the Bible says that there was a woman that put her hand to the nail and her right hand to the workman's hammer. And the hammer, with the hammer, she smote Sisera, she smote off his head when she had pierced and stricken through his temples. <laughs> Boom! And, and, and God's just giving you kind of an Old Testament picture of what Christ is going to do. Abimelech, John, Judges chapter 9, verse 53, it says, There was a certain woman that cast a piece of millstone upon Abimelech's head and all to break his skull. You say, man, that Old Testament was kind of rough. It was rough, for sure. But what God is showing you is there's coming a judgment to where, at least in those two scenarios, there's a woman that's part of delivering judgment on these wicked men who are a picture of Antichrist. Then you got the greatest story of all, right? You got Goliath, David and Goliath. David's a picture of Christ. Goliath's a picture of the Antichrist. David put his hand in his bag in 1 Samuel 17 and verse 49. He took a stone and he slung it. I love that terminology. He slung it. <laughs> David was probably from Alabama. <laughs> And he smote the Philistine in his forehead, and that stone, that stone sunk into his forehead, and he fell upon his face to the earth. All those instances, all those Old Testament types of, of somebody delivering a head wound to an enemy, to a person that resembles 
the Antichrist. It all foreshadows what Christ is going to do. Because ultimately, some people would say, well, well, Christ defeated Satan on the cross of Calvary. Partially, in, in the sense that he defeated the power of death that the devil has and the consequence of our sin, but ultimately he didn't crush the devil's head. That comes at the second coming of Christ or the second advent. Look at Isaiah 63, verses 1 to 6. And I know that's a lengthy passage, but can you just look at it? When Christ returns to this earth at his second coming or the second advent, he's going to do business. And ultimately, he will do business and deal with Satan once and for all. Isaiah 63, verses 1 to 6. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This, uh, this that is glorious in his apparel, uh, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore, thou art red in thine apparel and thine garments like him that treadeth the wine fat. And again, he's given the, the illustration of somebody that would tread out wine grapes, and and ultimately their garment would be dyed red from just stomping through a wine press, crushing grapes to get the juice out. And and ultimately, God is foreshadowing what Christ is going to do at his second coming. He says, I've trodden the wine press alone, and of the people there were none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments and I will stain all my raiment. And you say, well, I don't like that. Man, that's, that's strong statement. That, that's strong verbiage. But that's, that's how Christ is going to come the second time he comes. He won't come as, as, as a shepherd. He won't come as, 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 as a babe in a manger. He'll come as a conquering king taking what is rightfully his, the kingdom, and all nations, and this earth. Verse 4 says, The day of vengeance is mine in my heart, and the year of the redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help. And I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation to me, and my fury it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger, and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring their strength, bring down their strength to the earth. And again, man, you would say, well, that's Old Testament angry God. Well, it's also prophetic of second coming God. It's second coming Jesus Christ, who will return to establish his kingdom and deal ultimately with Satan and those that oppose him. Revelation 19, verses 15 and 16. Uh, Man, I love this passage, and I wish we had time to read it all. Revelation 19 is when heaven opens. Let me just give you a tip if you're studying the book of Revelation. You want to find the two places that heaven opens in the book of Revelation. The first time it opens is in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. Heaven opens and someone goes up, and it would be John. John is a a type or a picture of the church. He's a picture of the rapture of the church. The church is never mentioned again after Revelation chapter 3. It's mentioned a lot in chapters 1, 2, and 3, but it's never mentioned again after chapter 3, all through the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 19, heaven opens again, someone comes down. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he comes, listen, y'all, he's coming as a conquering king. And I, and I don't know how else to encourage you. Listen, if you don't know Christ today, if you're not saved today, you don't want to be on the other side of this. Like You want to be on the side of the cross where Christ bled out and died for your sin. You don't want to be on the other side of his coming where you bleed out and die and eternally pay for your sin. Because when he's coming, he's coming in vengeance. He's coming to establish his kingdom. Revelation 19, verse 16, it says, Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The conquering king is going to return. Psalm 58 and verse 10 says, The righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. You say, man, Jay, I I didn't really show up for this today. Look, I didn't either. But God said in Romans chapter 16, Hey, God's going to bruise Satan's head under your feet shortly. And we have to understand that happens at the second 
coming of Christ. Psalm 68, verses 21 to 23, there's a ton of other references. It says, God shall wound the head of his enemies, and the hairy scalp of such a one that goeth on still in his trespasses. The Lord said, I will bring again from Bashan, I will bring my people from the depths of the sea, that thy foot may be dipped in the blood of thine enemies and the tongue of thy dogs in the same. And again, man, we read that, we watch war movies and we think nothing of it. But when we read the Bible and say God's going to execute perfect wrath and judgment, we have a problem because we would say a loving God would never do that. Well, God is loving, but God is holy. God is, God is forgiving, but God is also righteous and he's just. And, and we can't separate his character. And listen, the, the, beautiful, the beautiful thing for us, if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, at that second coming of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ, the church is with him. We, we, are, we are with him in the book of Revelation, chapter 19. We are riding on horses, clothed in white raiment. We've been through the judgment seat of Christ. And when he says that he's going to bruise Satan head, Satan's head under our feet, the reason he says that is because we're with him at his coming. As a matter of fact, the moment you got saved and accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, did you understand that you can never be separated from Christ again? The minute you got saved and the Spirit of God sealed you, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, you were born again, according to John chapter 3, you were separated from Christ and you received the gospel and you were saved. And can I tell you, you'll never be without Christ again. And Christ will never be without you again. You're in his body and he is in you and you're in him. And, and, so, and so again, it just gives more power to what's being said in Romans 16, because you and I, as believers in Christ, when the Lord returns to establish his kingdom on this earth, well, you're going to be with him. You're going to see it firsthand. And because you are the body of Christ, well, some of you are his feet. <laughs> I think that's pretty cool. So when's that going to happen? Well, it hadn't happened yet. God says it's going to happen shortly. Okay, well, that's interesting. And again, I said earlier, you know, there are some people that I think maybe take a little too much fervor and liberty in understanding who Satan is. Do you know that Michael the archangel didn't even rebuke Satan himself? Michael the archangel in Jude verse 9, when he was contending with the devil over the body of Moses, by the way, he did not bring railing accusation against Satan, but he said, the Lord rebuked thee. I think we could take a lesson out of Michael's playbook as Christians. There's probably some, some preachers that need to take a, a lesson out of Michael's playbook. Or, you, you understand? Ain't nobody going to be rebuking Satan except the Lord. And, and so if we want to invoke somebody to rebuke him, we're going to say the Lord's going to rebuke you, uh, Satan. And, and what you've got coming is coming shortly. Uh, when you study that word shortly, First mention of that's all the way back in Genesis 41. Uh, Pharaoh and the dream with Joseph about the seven years of plenty, the seven years of famine. Uh, God uses the term shortly to describe 14 years. Second uh, Peter chapter 3 and verse 8 says that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. You know, when this was written in the first century, well, it's been a few thousand years since then. But it's still shortly. In God's economy, a day is as a thousand years. Oh, it's just been a couple of days since God said, hey, don't worry. What he's got is coming, and it's coming very soon. It's coming shortly. And so we can trust the word of God. As we close Romans, we need to understand, number one, Satan has an imminent defeat coming. It's not our job to defeat him. The God of peace is going to handle that. And you can, you can rest assured he's going to get what's coming to him. But until then, we have to battle rightly. We have to battle spiritually rightly. Number two, let's, let's move quick. You guys okay this morning? I hope that's helpful. Number two, I think this next portion is really important too. We need to have a right relationship with the scriptures. And we need to talk about how we got the scriptures. And, and, and Paul, as he's closing this epistle, writes something very interesting. Verse 21, Timotheus, my work fellow, Lucius, Jason, Sosipatura, my kinsmen, salute you. And then you get to verse 22, and there's a, really big, there's a really big elephant in the room in verse 22. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. Now, wait a second. 
We're talking about the most important book concerning our salvation in the whole Bible, the book of Romans. That's the doctrinal treatise of our salvation. And we always attribute Paul as the author of that, the human author. And yet, verse 22 says that somebody else wrote it. A guy named Tertius. So now we've got a problem. We've got a big problem. Uh, the real problem that we have is because some people say that only the original manuscripts are authoritative as it relates to the Bible or the Scriptures. And it was only when the pen touched the paper that inspiration really happened. And, and we need to talk about that for just a little bit because Paul's pen never touched the paper. Or let me rephrase it. Paul's pen never touched the papyrus. There we go. You guys cool with that? So let's, let's talk a little bit about the ins, inscripturation of the scriptures. And this is a little technical, but you guys had coffee this morning, so you can handle it. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2. God says that when he inspired men, something very specific happened. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. Listen, but holy men of God... What's the next word? They spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So when the Holy Ghost moved, did men write or did they speak? According to the Bible. They spake. Okay. So in your notes, write this key down. Paul is the one speaking because he received inspiration from God. The Holy, he was moved by the Holy Spirit of God. Tertius wrote, and he captured those words out of the air, and that's what we would call, very, in a very simplistic terminology, preservation. Are you guys okay this morning? I tell you we're going to have Bible study this morning? Okay, I warned you. All right, so Paul is the one speaking because he's the one move, being moved by the Holy Ghost. Tertius is writing. He's preserving the Scriptures. The question is, which one is authoritative? Well, it depends on who you ask. <laughs> because they're in, in, in church world and in, in religion, and, and this is important that we talk about this, because you as Christians need to know this. This isn't just for pastors to know. People talk about the inerrancy of Scripture all the time. The inerrancy of, of the Scripture is the belief that the Bible is not only inspired, but it's free from any mistake or falsehood, and that what's revealed on any subject cannot ultimately be proven false. And so a lot of people talk about inerrancy of the Scripture. But what they also talk about or teach is that inspiration took place, and here's your blank, at the point where the pen touched the papyrus. As a matter of fact, that's the most common Bible college or seminary definition of inspiration. The problem is Paul's pen never touched the paper. Paul's pen never touched the papyrus. He dictated the entire thing to Tertius, his secretary. Inspiration comes from the Spirit of God, and it results in speaking. And so Paul was the one speaking. So let me just say this. If you want to go back to the original, the original originals, you're not going to find a piece of papyrus. You're going to find words in the air. That's the original. The original is what was spoken and this is really important because there are such people today that would say, well, if you don't have the original manuscripts only, you can't really know what God says. And that's called OMO in your notes. I was very careful with that, not to add a letter. Okay, OMO. I was just seeing if y'all were awake. Original manuscript only means that only the original author and only the original writing is inspired and inerrant. In other words, we've got to go find the original. And if we can't find the original, we, we can't really know what God says. Well, that's foolish. That's humanistic. That's natural man reasoning. And, 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 and let me just say, we have a really big problem when it comes to the book of Romans because Paul didn't even write it. So the most important document concerning our salvation and the doctrinal treatise and the understanding of what God said concerning our sin and the redemptive work in Christ can't even be trusted because Paul didn't write it. Well, that's foolishness. The Bible says that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. 
And God gave us the Holy Scriptures through that process. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, it's not in your notes, but the Bible says that from a child, Timothy had known the Holy Scriptures. Well, did he have the originals? Of course not. Did he have copies of copies of copies of the original? Probably so. They weren't the original document. They weren't the original writing. And yet, God called them the Holy Scriptures. They were able to make him wise to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So how did God get his revelation to man? And again, we're getting into ministry tools and training stuff right now. But let me show you this this next slide. This is how God reveals his word to man. It's not on your notes. You can screenshot it or or whatever. Uh, Or you can just go through discipleship and then come to MTT and we'll teach it to you. God's going to reveal himself through revelation, but the way he's doing it specifically is through inspiration, moving holy men of God, and the result of that is words. They speak. And then those words are captured out of the air and inscripturated and recorded in writing. And then that writing is copied through a a method of transmission. In the Old Testament, it was the scribes that had that responsibility. In the New Testament, it's the priesthood of believers. And then those those copies are providentially preserved and then translated and moved from one language to another. And here's the point. You won't find the originals. You're not going to find them. And so anybody that makes that fallacy of an argument is trying to find something that does not exist. It doesn't exist. Nobody has the originals. There are no original writings because the original wasn't writing. Let me say that again. The original was not writing. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And then those words were captured out of there. So the biblical doctrine of inspiration and preservation is critically important for you to understand as a Christian because you need to know if you can have God's words today. Because if you can't have God's words today, why are we even here? You just let your experience and your feelings and your emotions and what you think rule your brand of Christianity, and I'll let it rule mine, and hopefully we can agree at least on some things, but probably not. This whole, this whole issue is so critically important. Again, I know I'm digging deep today, but you need to understand you're not going to find the originals. You don't speak ancient Hebrew, and seminary students don't either. <clears throat> there is no original manuscripts that are locked away in some cabinet that really contain the truth of God's word. That process is not a biblical process. And so it's a house of cards. What you can understand is that God has a a process of inspiration and preservation. And God can get his exact words to you today as a Christian so that you can know with assurance, I don't just have the word of God. I have the words of God. I don't have God's general idea on the subject I have God's very precise, accurate, exact words concerning all things in this book. And that's why it matters. Because at the end of the day, we need to know what the God who speaks really has said. And so we need to have a right relationship with the Scriptures. We need to know that Satan's defeat is coming. We need to know that we can have a Bible that we can trust. And that you don't have to be on some aimless search for something that you'll never achieve and get because whoever told you that lied to you because it's impossible. And then number three, we need to have a right relationship with the gospel. And, and we got a few minutes, and let me just wind it down here. The secret of the gospel, and, and we find this in the last few verses of, of the chapter. And Paul just kind of goes right at the end. He deals with Satan, he deals with the scriptures, and then he deals with this issue of the gospel. And he says, to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest. And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. 
Okay, let's talk about the gospel for just a second. What Paul is talking about is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ according to the scriptures. Paul says that the gospel is a mystery that was hidden since the world began. And yet now it's revealed to him through God, through, through Christ. Look at Galatians chapter 1. Did I put Galatians 1 on the screen? Hallelujah. Look at that. Look at Galatians 1. Paul says, I do, not persuade, uh, do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? By the way, that's a good question for all of us. Now, it, he didn't say anything about pleasing your wife. You should do that for sure. Men? Okay. All the men from the men's conference are supposed to say amen right there. Uh, I know, you're still asleep. It's okay. Paul says, you know, if I uh, yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. Neither I received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. The gospel that Paul preached, he got it from who? Christ. Did he get it from Abraham? Did he get it from any other Old Testament prophet? He got it specifically from the person of Jesus Christ himself. So this gospel, and, the, and, the, and again, I know we're, we're in deep weeds this morning. That's why you need to get discipled and come to ministry tools and training. But you need to understand that there's more than one gospel in your Bible. And you say, blasphemy. And I say, you need to read your Bible. There's more than one gospel in your Bible. And you, listen, there's more than one people group in the Bible. There's Jew, there's Gentile, there's the church, according to 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 32. So, so the Bible is written to different people groups. And there's more than one. There's more than one baptism in the Bible. Those of you that have studied your Bible and been through MTT, you understand that. There's more than one testament in the Bible. There's more than one covenant. There's more than one dispensation. And you need to understand there's more than one gospel. What Paul is talking about is his gospel. It's the gospel of the grace of God. He, he calls it in Romans and in 2 Timothy, he calls it my gospel. Look what he says. And the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to whose gospel? My gospel. Paul personalized it. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 8. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. That same gospel is called the gospel of the grace of God in Acts chapter 20 and verse 24. Paul says, listen, this is the gospel of the grace of God. We're to preach Christ crucified to the nations. That's what he's talking about. But there is more than one gospel in the Bible. And I know you're looking at me right now thinking, man, you've lost your mind, Jay. And we're looking for a new pastor starting next week. Well, there was a gospel that was preached to Abraham, according to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8. But I guarantee you it wasn't the gospel of Paul. It wasn't the death, burial, and resurrection of Paul. Or, or, excuse me, of Christ, according to Paul. Uh, Galatians 3 and verse 8 says, In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, Preached before the gospel unto who? Abraham, saying, believe on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. That's not what it said. Gospel just means good news. And the gospel to Abraham was, in thee shall all nations be blessed. Of course, ultimately that's fulfilled in Christ. But that good news is not the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus preached to Abraham. It tells you what is said right there. In thee shall all nations be blessed. That's what it says. There's also the gospel of the kingdom according to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 23. Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the what? Of the grace of God? The gospel of the kingdom. And healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. Well, the gospel of the kingdom is a different gospel than the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the grace of God. You say, I don't think it is. Well, in Matthew chapter 4, he hadn't died yet. He hadn't been buried. He hadn't rose again. It's the gospel of the kingdom. In Revelation chapter 14, there's a, there's a thing called the everlasting gospel. Well, what's that? Well, it's different than the other ones. You're right in the middle of the tribulation period. The Bible says, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to them that dwell on the earth, to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. And by the way, that's an angel that's preaching that gospel. That's very interesting. 
And then you get to 2 Corinthians 11, and it says, Paul warns and says, listen, if anybody preaches another Jesus whom we've not preached, or you receive another spirit which you've not received, or another gospel which you've not accepted, you might bear with him. Now, did I just confuse everybody? That was my point, just to puke it all out. The point is, you, you better know which gospel to trust for your salvation. It, it's the gospel of the grace of God. It's Paul's gospel. It's the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the scriptures, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And, and you need to understand that if you preach a Matthew chapter 4 gospel of the kingdom and you try to fix all the sickness and heal all the disease in the world, that's a social gospel. And it won't get you to heaven. And it won't wash away your sin. And it won't bring in the kingdom as social gospel preachers like to think. <laughs> Preaching the wrong gospel. So what's the point? Well, if you're saved today, you've received the right gospel. You believed in Jesus Christ for the finished work to pay for your sin. And here's the last point. Doctrinally, there are more than one gospel, but, but inspirationally, you got one that was committed to your trust. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of the grace of God. That gospel was committed to your trust. In other words, God entrusted you with that. And what do you think God wants with something that he entrusts us with? Yeah, faithfulness. We need to be faithful what God's trusts us with. And I know you got all your blanks, but look at 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 4. Paul says, but we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel. We, not just Paul, we. We were allowed to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but who? But God, which trieth our hearts. You see, when we get entrusted with something, and God's the one that entrusts us, we need to be really concerned with pleasing God, right? Not, we don't need to be concerned with pleasing men, because men didn't entrust this gospel to us. So, so does anybody ever have a hard time? Sometimes you, you feel like, okay, yeah, for sure, I need, to, I need to be more evangelistic. I need to build relationships to share the gospel. But man, what are people going to think? What if they reject me? What if, what if they turn me down? What if they know more Bible than I do? And all, all those are legitimate concerns. But we have to get to the place that we understand God gave us the gospel to steward it. He put us in trust with it, and we're called to share it. And, and who cares what anybody else thinks? Who cares what they think, man? I, I, really, want, I, I really want to please the Lord. I don't, I don't want to be a jerk for Jesus and just go tick a bunch of people off. But I also don't want to be silent and never preach the gospel to anybody else. Does that, does that make sense? We, we're called to, to, to steward this mystery of the gospel rightly. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Anytime God trusts us with something, he holds us accountable. He, he wants us to steward it well. That's true of our, our relationships. That's true of our finances. That's true of our children. God's really interested in how we raise our children. For men, that's, that's true of our wives, how we, how we lead our wives and husbands our wives. We're called to steward that properly. Wives, you're called to steward how you, how you have a relationship with your husband and concerning the gospel, God's entrusted us with this precious gift. And we need to be faithful with it. We've got to be faithful. And that means we share it. <laughs> we give it to the intended audience. First, First Corinthians 4, we'll close with this verse because we're out of time. But look at, look at verses 1 to 2. Remember, this gospel is a mystery. Paul said this is, this is one of the mysteries. I guess that makes eight mysteries, right, in the New Testament uh, for the church instead of seven the way we teach it. But uh, look at verse 1. Let a man so account of us as the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The gospel's a mystery. We've got to steward it. Moreover, it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. So the question is, as we close, what are you doing with what was committed to your trust? How many of you are saved? You know you're saved, man. I know we haven't asked you to bow your heads and close your eyes and all that stuff. Listen, if you're saved, God has given you the gift of the gospel, and you believed it, and now it's yours. And, and it's just like Paul. Paul says, listen, this is my gospel. Let, let's be faithful stewards. Let's look for opportunities and for people that hadn't heard it. And, and you don't know who's heard it until you start talking to people. Amen? I, I always give the illustration. I have a lot of people, you know, not a lot, but, but there are some people in our community that knock on our door. 
nobody has ever knocked on my door to share the gospel. Now, they've shared a false gospel, and they shared some other stuff, or they've wanted to sell stuff, or, or they're just, you know, you know, ministers of the devil, whatever. But they've never preached the gospel to me. I've never, I can count on one hand how many times anybody has ever preached the gospel to me. Now, how do they know I'm saved? How do they know I know the gospel? Well, they watch the YouTube. Okay, whatever. We got like three subscribers. Give me a break. They, they don't know, they don't know me from nobody. All right. I mean, I, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like Cody and Colin, you know, and sometimes it's even thumbs down. You know, I don't even, I'm about to fire Cody because he ain't even helping me, you know, on that. He's like, man, we got like negative reviews. That's because the guy that works here. Okay. So yeah. So nobody ever witnesses to me and I, and nobody knows me, man. And, and you would probably say the same. When's the last time somebody witnessed to you? What that means is we have a lot of Christians in our city that have been entrusted with the greatest gift ever, the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they're not doing anything with it. We ought to be bumping into each other and saying, man, or, man, let me ask you about your relationship with Christ. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? No, I don't. Tell me about that. Okay, let me tell you about it. Let me walk you through the gospel. Oh, you are saved? Man, how awesome. Let's pray together real quick and let's go find some other people to tell. None of that happens. Uh, it's just because it's too easy not to do it. It's just too easy not to do it. Let's don't be that kind of Christian. Amen? Let's don't be that kind of Christian. We, we got to get the gospel out, man, because time's short. Time's short. God is going to bruise Satan's head shortly. And there's no more opportunity to share the gospel after that, at least for us. So let's be about it. Let's pray about it. Let's, let's, let's be engaged with what God's given us. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for the morning. Uh, God, I pray as we, as we close out the book, Lord, you're, you're honored uh, with everything that was said and done. I pray that uh, help us to have confidence uh, that you are greater. You are greater than our adversary. God, you are stronger. You're, you're better. You're, you're, you're more powerful. You know more. You can do more. And he may can hinder us, and he may can blind people to the gospel. You can open their eyes through the word of God. The, the Bible says that the entrance of thy word giveth light. And God, as we preach the gospel, as we open the word of God, God, you can take the darkness that the devil has blinded people with, and you can illuminate their minds with the word of God. Help us to be good stewards of your word, and help us to be good stewards of the gospel. Thank you that you've given us an inspired and preserved word. We can know you perfectly, and we thank you for the gift. God, I love my church very, very much. I love these people very much, and I'm blessed and humbled to be their pastor. Help us to reach our city for the cause of Christ. We love you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.